Good People, Cool Things is a podcast featuring conversations with entrepreneurs, writers, musicians, and other creatives. Get inspired by their stories to do your own cool thing. And here's your host, Joey Held. Welcome to Good People, Cool Things. Today's guest is Joe McNally, who has been a freelance photographer for more than 40 years. His first job was back in 1976 as a copy boy, so we're talking all about what that entails. It's a, a job that's probably not super common nowadays, but pretty fantastic to hear how he's grown from that into someone who has photographed all kinds of fantastic things and celebrities from the Sydney Olympics to Michelle Pfeiffer. He has a fantastic story about Michelle Pfeiffer. We're also talking about why confidence is so important, how to get more access to things, because that'll help you accomplish more in life. Confidence, baby, confidence. It will get the job done. We're also talking about some moments that didn't go as well as Joe hoped, but it all comes back to the importance of preparation and making a decision that you think is right in the moment, even if it doesn't turn out like that, because sometimes you'll get happy accidents coming out of things. And we wrap up with some dessert talk, and ooh, I hope you have eaten before listening to this episode, because otherwise you're going to be drooling just a little bit by the end of the episode. If you'd like to get in touch with Good People Cool Things, reach out via Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at GPCT Podcast. And as always, I'd appreciate a five-star review. Head on over to Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. Drop the sweet, sweet five stars, just as sweet as the desserts we're talking about. That helps more people discover the show, learn about these great guests. Spreading the word is so very appreciated. You can also just tell someone you know. Hey, there's a cool podcast. It's called Good People, Cool Things. Check it out. And then they can listen to conversations like this one with Joe. For people who aren't familiar with you and your work, can you tell us your name, your elevator pitch, and the type of elevator that we're riding on? It's interesting you should mention that uh, because I mentioned uh, elevators in the book. Uh, But my name is Joe McNally. I've been a... uh, mostly freelance photographer. I was a staff photographer at Life Magazine for a period of time during my career, but mostly uh, a freelance general assignment magazine photographer. And it's been a long haul with a camera, but also a a wonderful one. So I'm very lucky, consider myself to be very lucky. I'm still doing this and I still love it. We're going to hop all the way back to your first job back in 1976 as a copy boy, which I love this description that you use of the wretched dog of the newsroom. Now, I, am, I imagine most people listening probably don't have any kind of experience with this. So what, what did you have to do as a copy boy? Well, I joined the Daily News. It was a, a hot type tabloid newspaper at really the height of its powers in many ways. Million, million and a half copies, you know, uh, you know per day. Hot type means, you know, it's uh, a process where you melt lead and cast it into type on big linotype machines, enormous machines that were in the press room, and then ink those uh, those blocks of type, and then you roll the paper on them, and it comes to life. So not really uh, a similar situation now, let's put it that way. So uh, <laughs> the physical transport of stories was very, very important. Um, it, you know, you'd have to actually take paper, a story, and move it from place to place. So that was really the origin of the term copy boy. 
So uh, yeah, and then in the in between, you did all sorts of stuff. You would you would run errands, you would get coffee, you know, uh, donuts, whatever. Uh, you'd go and run for run film. You'd take a radio car and go pick something up for a top editor, whatever. You were an all-purpose errand kid, really, in lots of ways. <laughs> so, yeah. And you moved from that to freelancing, which you've been doing, like you said, for the better part of, of 40 years. Was there a single moment where you you were like, I need to make this this leap? Or what was kind of the plan as you, you went into freelance? Well... That's the thing, you know, uh, it it may sound relatively idiotic to someone who might try to make plan a career, but uh, there was no plan. I mean, I had plan A, that was to be a photographer in New York City. There was no plan B. And there was no real roadmap to how I would get there. You know, I thought that joining as a copy boy at the Daily News, I would get promoted into the studio, which I did, which was part of the photo operation. But then the paper hit some economic troubles and, you know, purged, uh, you know, some employees and I was last hired, first fired, et cetera. And so I hit the streets and started stringing what they called stringing. Uh, back in the day, you, you would freelance for wire services, newspapers, small jobs, big jobs sometimes, but, you know, day-to-day work, you know, I could do a job for the New York times in the morning, a job for the associated press, uh, in the afternoon. And then at night I'd go to studio 54 and see if I could, you know, grab a couple of celebrity pictures and run them over to the UPI. So not much money was changing hands, <laughs> but if you did enough of them, you could actually carve out a, a living. And you chronicle a lot of that work in your new book, the real deal field notes from the life of a working photographer. And I think a couple questions I have from this one, can you talk about the importance of having field notes? Because I, I think that can sometimes be, especially for people starting out, it's kind of something they might overlook of like, you know, not capturing everything that's going on, whether they're they're doing photography or some, some other sort of creative endeavor. And did you know you always wanted to put these notes into a book or how did that become something that you, you put out into the world? Well, you know, I, I the idea of field notes was really something my editor and I hit on as a piece of the title because a lot of what I was writing sounded like notes from the field, you know, like, you know, uh, thoughts or uh, small vignettes, sometimes more in large stories. And there isn't the need nowadays to keep a track of what you're doing in the field. The camera does so much of that for you via metadata, et cetera. But field notes were very important um, processing notes you could go on a job, a big job, and I could easily shoot 70, 80, 100 rolls of either 35 millimeter or two and a quarter film. And I'd have to make processing notes on all of that, you know, push or pull, bring it to the lab, uh, batch A. If we moved a light, we would have a film log and say, okay, rolls A1 through A12 was this lighting scenario. Then we moved the light and made adjustments. So from that point forward, A13 through A32, those rolls were shot after the light adjustment. So you'd have to physically transcribe what you were doing in the field oftentimes. Did you ever mix things up and it led to disaster or were you were you very well organized? Uh, I've never made a mistake, Joy, ever, <laughs> ever. It's always been a lock. 
<laughs> oh, of course, yeah. <laughs> you know, some you know legendary mistakes have occurred over the course of time, with uh, you know things getting lost, uh, you know, film that was misprocessed. Thankfully, I don't own any of those particularly legendary ones, but yeah, sure, I've made tons of mistakes and had to double back. I've had to reshoot things. Um, you know, I've lost equipment, you know, you know, or I've been, had to improvise where I went to one city, my gear went to another on another airplane that was not supposed to. I mean, the most legendary story is the uh, Robert Capo when he landed with the troops on D-Day, risked his life. And if you know that very famous picture of the GI in the surf uh, at Normandy, it's all reticulated and granular. That was because they uh, blew the processing. They they dropped it in too hot a bath of developer or either developer or wash. And when you do that to film back in the day, the grain would just sort of explode. So I would not want to be the lab technician who screwed up Robert Kappa's film. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just picturing myself in that situation. I think I'd just melt into the core of the earth. Uh, if that if that ever happened, and and maybe this is a nice segue because I always like asking, uh, really anyone in in any kind of creative field this, but you you mentioned some of the uh, sort of mistakes or, or you know less than stellar things that you've had. Is there a particularly memorable worst experience gig session, whatever you want to call it? They all have their certain measure of pain, you know, <laughs> you know <laughs> scars, you know that that leave themselves on you. I mean. Yeah, I do write, uh, uh, you know, about a couple of jobs where I was just classically, you know, uh, dumb about it. Um, I blew, um, you know, you, you just, some of it sometimes is lack of experience. Other times it's lack of judgment. You you pick wrong. You know, I, had, I, I covered the Sydney Olympics for time and I did a terrible job. I just was off my game, you know, and I chose to go to the top of the stadium for the opening ceremonies. And I shot a 617 panorama camera and my editors just scrawled all over the film um, too far away, you know, things like that. I made a, I made a bad judgment call. It was not a good message to get, it's, you know, when it's on grease pencil actually on your film, you know, that's a pretty emphatic way of indicating displeasure if you're an editor. So, yeah, uh, you know, it, but the thing is, photographers were very um, uh, not prone to make mistakes, but were available to make mistakes because we have to pursue very quickly. We have to trust our instincts. We have to go into the field with almost a childish sense of enthusiasm for what's about to happen. And you get really wired up about stuff and uh, mistakes will happen. And, and also at the same time, some wonderful things will happen. You know, uh, you know, there's, there's, uh, you know, happy accidents and bad accidents and they occur. And yeah, that was, that was something else that I wanted to touch on as well. I, I think I have super minimal experience uh, with photography, but I happened to capture a corgi that was uh, barking a lot at a much bigger dog at a dog park one time and then the dog just gave one deep bark and the corgi like recoiled in horror and I happened to get that reaction shot and it's like it's it's a little blurry because again I'm not a good photographer but I 
it's still one of my favorite things. And I just happened to like be looking at what was going on and was ready. And that's, I think that's a, a great example of kind of a happy accident. And you with far more experience out in there, do you have a couple of, of favorite happy accidents or situations where you were kind of surprised by what was unfolding in front of you? And you're like, all right, let's capture this. Yeah. I mean, sometimes you, you place a bet and you know, and then all of a sudden you realize afterwards, well, that worked out, you know, <laughs> um, you know, with you, you try to study things. I, I, I did politics in, in early in my career and you would study candidates and try to figure out if they had a tendency to go right or left, if they, how they would work a crowd or are, are they right-handed, where would they be open to uh, a camera angle, et cetera, possibly. And then you place your bet and you jump right in and, and, wow, sometimes it just turns right into you. And uh, the, you know, that luck of the draw is, uh, is luck, but it's also, it, you, you get luckier as you get more experienced. You know, uh, the really experienced sports photographers, for instance, will know what a certain team is going to do on third and 17 at a football game. They, they just intuit that because they've been around the block. So yeah, that, that kind of thing can happen where um, all of a sudden you'll, you'll just say, whoa, um, that, that really did work out. Or the other thing can happen, you know, I mean, I, I was covering the Hawaiian Ironman triathlon and I had all the arrangements. So I was shooting for National Geographic and, and had a Zodiac. I had gained permission to dive so I was underwater for the start of the Ironman, 2,500 runners, swimmers, et cetera, hit the water and think, oh, okay, this is going to be fantastic. I see a few swimmers. I see a few more and I don't really see too many. I'm like, what happened? I had drifted on my dive um, and I, uh, I was terrified. I, I surfaced and, you know, I recouped it by zooming ahead of them in the Zodiac, but I was absolutely terrified about the idea of going back to the National Geographic and trying to explain to my editor that I had missed 2,500 relatively slow moving people. You know, I mean, how can you do that? You know, so yeah, you know, sometimes it, this, there's an old movie line, you know, sometimes the magic works and sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> well, it sounds like it's, it's working more often than not. And I think that's the, the most important thing. <laughs> yeah, you keep after it, you know, and you achieve a, a certain, again, a, a certain steadiness about you, you know, a confidence. This business is an awful lot about confidence. If you can walk in to a situation and assess in rapid fashion and act with confidence, man, that's huge. Um, you know, if you, if you are tentative, your pictures will probably be tentative. And also, too, you're oftentimes sent to people who have enormous egos and very little time. And so you have to match their bravado, if you will, with your own, you know, solid sense of confidence in terms of what you can do and what you can pull off. And over the years, have you learned any kinds of, I, I don't know if it's, it's like preparation or, or tips kind of along the way to, to kind of have that confidence? Because I agree. I, I think something that you mentioned in kind of the, the book description is the importance of access, which I think is such an, a key thing to point out there and that a lot of great moments can happen because of access. Again, it's not restricted to photography. Like I have had great experiences in life kind of just by being like, I'm going to go into this place or like ask someone, can I go into this thing that maybe is, is off limits to the general public, but you just have to ask for it. So 
what have you learned along the way in terms of, of access and confidence? Yeah, a, a bunch of stuff. And it sounds naively obvious, but, you know, photographers, we get thrown into situations. We oftentimes just jump in, we parachute in. Preparation is uh, is huge. I, I, in every instance, um, I would say when I'm dealing with somebody who is at a certain level, uh, well, actually anybody, you know, really you prepare, but the more famous someone is, the more material is out there to devour about them. So I really do a lot of reading. You know, if I'm photographing somebody in the movies, I watch all their movies. And uh, I, you know, I could tell that came around. I photographed Michelle Pfeiffer for life and we had lunch in LA and uh, she was very concerned about her lighting. We had never worked together before and I had sketches and things and I had studied all her movies. And uh, she told me, she said, I, I, you know, I, I need to be lit soft. I need to be lit a certain way. And I totally respected that. But she looked at me and she said, which movie do you think I was lit the best in? And I immediately just came back and said, Dangerous Liaisons. And she was like, yes. And she nodded. And she said there was a, a assistant art director who's an older man who was absolutely just in love with her. And he would literally trot alongside of her, like in a tracking shot, holding a fillboard just out of camera range to dish a little light into her face so she would look her best. And she said, I adored this man. I absolutely adored this man. And so that was like, I didn't fumble around. I was like, oh, well, I, I really liked uh, uh, Scarface. You know, or, no, I knew immediately it was Dangerous Liaison. She was luminously beautiful. And I patterned some of my light for that job on some of the catch lights. I could freeze frame the film and see some of the catch lights in her eyes and judge the size and scope of the light sources and the direction of them from, uh, you know, stills that she had been in or uh, a freeze frame of, of, of films. That's incredible. I think I, I, you just taught me something I need to look for the next time I watch a movie. Cause that's, yeah. that's fascinating that you can, you can see all that. Well, you can, you can tell, you know, the direction of light at, back again, back in the day, you know, before there was a tremendous amount of retouching, digital retouching now, uh, you know, it does a lot of things to people's eyes, but the, I would get on planes and I wouldn't have, you know, time and Newsweek and Sports Illustrated. I, I'd have Vogue and, um, you know, Harper's Bazaar, Cosmo, <laughs> you know, cause the fashion photographer, I was really trying to learn how to light and, the, the folks who are really good fashion photographers really know how to light. And so I looked at their work and I could look in the pupils of the eyes and see umbrella, softbox, position, all that sort of stuff. And then start to, I call it the Rolodex of survival. You start to build up this uh, collection of, of notes, postcards, whatever in your head that you can refer to. And it helps you, definitely helps. Taking a quick break here to share a show that I think you'll really enjoy. Did you know that Big Bird was originally scheduled to fly on the Tragic Challenger space shuttle mission? Or how about this one? The guy who invented Pringles was buried inside of a Pringles can. Well, it seems like a tight squeeze to me, but you do you. Here's a weird one. The CIA once invented a dart gun that would give people a heart attack without anyone knowing they'd been shot. All of these topics are from episodes of The Internet Says It's True, a podcast by comedian and magician Michael Kent. 
Every week, a listener gives him an idea of a crazy, bizarre story from history that sounds fake, but is 100% absolutely true. Every episode ends with Michael giving a pop quiz on the topic to one of his show business friends. It's like taking a history class, but where all the topics are weird and fun, and you won't get lectured if you don't know something. Or maybe that was just my experience with history. Listen and subscribe at theinternetsaysitstrue.com or wherever you're listening to this podcast. Now you've traveled to 70 countries, more than 70 countries for uh, your work has taken you, or roughly around. Yeah, in the ballpark, yep. Okay. Still still far more, I would say, than the, the average person. So I've got, I've got a two-part question for you, and they're not really related at all, but they're both vaguely around travel. Number one, is there any place that you want to travel to that you haven't been yet? And number two, do you have, outside of your gear, obviously, do you have a go-to travel item that you always have to bring with you? Yes, uh, I do. Um, I have never worked in uh, the South Seas, you know, or uh, I've been to Australia uh, a number of times, but I've never been to New Zealand. I've never been to Tahiti, you know, and that Polynesian, you know, beauty that is out there in those amazing islands. I've, I've always wanted to do that. Never, never was able to grab an assignment in that direction. I mean, <laughs> assignments to Tahiti don't, <laughs> don't come along too often, I think. Um, so, and um, yeah, I mean, you're looking at them. You know, I had long, long airplane rides, earphones, you know, comfortable earphones to kind of shut out the noise of the plane and uh, enable some rest, things like that, you know, the, you know, so that music is always important to me um, when I'm on location. Uh, but, you know, in the days of Walkman, you know, I, I, or Discman, you know, I used to have, used to bring my CDs and if I was in some sort of dodgy place sleeping in, you know, some hotel I wasn't sure of or out somewhere, we weren't sure what kind of bugs would crawl on you. I just put some headphones on, put on some music and I try to go to sleep and just let, let the music sort of transport me away from the worries of what might happen. You know, so, um, yeah, so, so that kind of auditory, you know, peace or calm is, is important to me. Do you, this might be more of a modern day question, but with, you know, the ease of putting playlists together on, on a platform like Spotify, do you have specific sort of moods or, or, you know, types of music that you'll play based on the type of work that you're doing? Or do you kind of have a consistent out in the field slash trying to sleep uh, playlist? No, I, I, I don't. I, I, I punt around a little bit. Absolutely. Yeah, I like, um, you know, I, I, kind of like my assigning career has been all over the lot. My musical tastes are all over the lot, really. Uh, I've been listening to a lot of Sean Rowe lately. He's got a, he's got a playlist up on, uh, I guess it's Pandora. Um, and uh He's just really got, you know, his collection of what he likes. He's got this gruff kind of voice and and he's a good poet, you know, with his music. So, and the other music that he gravitates to, I just find I enjoy and I can think to. I, I drive my wife a little crazy because she's not <laughs> so happy with my Celtic music. Um, okay. You know, I, 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 I wrote the book. I would put on, I would get up very early in the morning and, come down to the workroom and I would oftentimes play, um, 
you know, a, a little Irish music or something in, in the background, Celtic women, you know, uh, Clannad, you know, is, uh, is a, a, you know, a, a favorite group and, and um, oh, who else, a couple other folks. You, when you start sorting it out in your head, like, okay, what's that, what's that band's name again? You know, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I found that, that I could, I could write just with a little bit of, of soothing music in the background. Nice. Yeah, it's always it's always interesting to hear uh, how because some people are like I can't work with music like I can't type something while there's music with words or in some cases even just music at all. So I I as someone that likes having music while working, I I always appreciate hearing. Things yeah, like that. <laughs> I'm I'm looking it up now just for a sec just to see. Oh, you know another favorite is Joan Armitage. Um, love her. Bought her first album probably in 1970, and she's still making music. Kate Bush too is is uh, got a beautiful voice so and, uh, yeah you know it's important i think everybody's got a, their own way of clearing their head and you have to do that whether you're going to sit down and write or whether you're going to go out there in the world and photograph clarity of thought is a really really big uh issue when you go into the field with a camera in hand what is what is the story what are you after that's an important question to answer, an obvious one, but sometimes you can get so flummoxed by the the stuff of an assignment that you can lose your train of thought. Moving into kind of kind of a related question, I think. I always like to ask a question you wish you were asked more frequently. And you say, stop with the F-stop questions and, and gear questions, but let's focus on the pictures themselves. And I think this is a... a fairly basic question, but it might have kind of a complex answer. Why are pictures important? Oh, boy. Yeah. Um, yeah, we could be talking about this tomorrow. Um, I don't know about other folks, but my memory is fixed in still imagery. Uh, you know, and I think our sense of history and collective place in the timeline of the universe, uh, the record of that is most powerfully written in still photography. I mean, I can, you know, you know, uh, little girl, horribly burned, running down a road in Vietnam, and you've you have that image in your head. Yeah, yeah. You don't need to see it. All you need it is is for it to be described, and you you know immediately, immediately, uh, you know the situation. It brings you right back to that time and that period of history. You know, so. Uh, iconic, truly iconic still photography has the power of memory and it has the power of, uh, you know, provoking emotion, provoking reaction, making people stop, making them think, making them angry, making them sad, you know, uh, whatever it is, it's uh, a still, still photo can, I feel, elicit a powerful response and demand attention no matter when it was taken because the power of those truly iconic images don't fade really they just don't fade yeah a hundred percent agree with that and you're almost off the hook here but we're gonna take we're gonna take a little bit of a hard turn uh, okay sure well, yeah. i say hard turn like it's it's something real real darker but uh we're jumping into the top three and Again, this is something I like to source from you. You threw out desserts as an option. And so as a fellow sweets fan, I'd love to hear your top three desserts. 
Well, I can say in, in a general uh, term, you know, or general description, anything that involves chocolate and raspberries, you know, that's, that's awesome. My favorite ice cream is Ben and Jerry's uh, Cherry Garcia. Oh, fantastic. Uh, uh, which is great with, uh, uh, you know, actually you could throw a few raspberries on that. It's also awesome. Uh, any measure of raspberry or cherry cheesecake. Uh, excellent. Excellent. And it's not uh, Italian cheesecake, New York cheesecake. Uh, it would be the, the thick, robust, real cream cheese cake, you know, and not, nothing that's a little bit lighter on the ricotta side of things. Uh, I see, I don't, I don't do many desserts because I always do the math, right? Which is a sad thing, right? <laughs> but I look at a dessert and I, the first question I say, are the calories worth it? And the fancier a dessert gets, you know, almond dusted, et cetera, et cetera, with a, you know, jalapeno dressing and whatever it might be, I immediately steer clear of those. I'm very, very basic when it comes to dessert. Chocolate, raspberries, cheesecake, ice cream, straight up, straightforward. Let's not mess around with success. I'd also steer clear of a jalapeno dressing on any dessert and, <laughs> and probably most regular meals. Too. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's just like some chefs or restaurants get, I don't know, too fancy for their own good. You know? Yeah. Great. Just keep it simple. Keep they're, it simple. They're classes nice, for a reason. Yeah. yeah. Give me a nice piece of cake and some uh, ice cream and a little chocolate sauce. You've got a happy camper for sure. Uh, got to stop recording these at dinner time because now I'm just... <laughs> Just going to have dessert for dinner. <laughs> where, where are you located, Joey? I'm in Austin, Texas. Okay, cool. So. Cool. I'll be down in Austin later on uh, this year in a couple of months. Oh, nice. We'll go get some cake. That's Yeah, we'll stay in touch and, and uh, we can uh, you know do a calorie fest. <laughs> Fantastic. Sounds great. <laughs> in the meantime, if people want to check out the book or learn more about you and see, I mean, you have lots of great photos already on your website. Where can they find you? Okay, uh, sure. Uh, the website is joemcnally.com, straight up simple. Uh, blog uh, has a has a good readership, good following. That's joemcnally.com backslash blog. Over on Instagram, we're joemcnallyphoto. Nice and simple. Again, just like the desserts. Yeah, Keeping it's straightforward. Yeah. I like it. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't understand sometimes. And, I can, I, well, I can understand having fun with an Instagram name or something and doing something outlandish. Like, you know, I can't even think of one now, but if you're going to use it as we do as a relationship to your business, I, I think you have to keep it simple and on the fairly straightforward side. Yeah. Simple and easy to spell. Always a, always a good combo. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Cool. Well, Joe, thank you so much for taking the time to chat. This was fantastic and, and highly encourage everyone listening to, to check out your website and the book because they're fantastic photos. Thank you very much. I appreciate you taking the time uh, and invite me on the program. Absolutely. I usually end with a corny joke. I have a great, um, uh, you know, one that sort of actually probably could have been me when I was a kid. I don't know if you're <laughs> up for this or not, Joey. Absolutely. Let's hear it. Uh, um, you know, a uh, telemarketer calls a house and a little boy answers in a whisper. Hello? He goes, uh, ah, young man, is your mother in the house? Yes. Well, can she come to the phone? He goes, no, she's busy. Oh, okay. Well, what about your father? Is he in the house? Yes. Well, can he come to the phone? 
no, he's busy too. And I said, well, are there any other adults in the house? He goes, well, the police are here. He goes, oh my goodness, can any of them come to the phone? He goes, no, they're busy. I goes, how about anyone else? He said, well, the fire department's here too. He goes, oh my goodness, can they come to the phone? He goes, no, they're busy too. He goes, young man, why are all these adults in your house and why are they all so busy? They're looking for me. <laughs> Silly, fun, you know. Uh, love it, love it. I feel like mine's going to be a letdown after this now, but I'm still going to try it. What do you call a photo of a person taken by a dog? Documentary photography. Ooh, I like that. Not it, though. Alas, I think the right answer is a portrait. Ah, very cool. Get after it today, people. <laughs> very good. Good People, Cool Things is produced in Austin, Texas. If you were a fan of this episode, go ahead and hit that follow button. That helps more people hear the show. You can send me a message, joey at goodpeoplecoolthings.com. Thank you to all of the guests who have been on Good People, Cool Things. You can check out all the old episodes via goodpeoplecoolthings.com. As always, thank you for listening and have a wonderful day. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary, void, or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner.